From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rust. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Jim Wagner, Vice President and Design Partner at Hans Golf Design. Jim is a native Philadelphian with a degree in landscape architecture and leads the Caveman Construction Group that is an integral part of Hans Design. Jim has been involved in hundreds of design projects and having worked with him myself in a few, I can say you would be hard pressed to find a more dedicated, genuine, and candid member of the golf industry, as well as one of its leading architects. The success of a modern golf course requires a functional soil. This function is very dependent on organic matter levels as well as soil temperature and moisture. Managing vital soil properties requires good physical property management, and for that, you should turn to dryject services that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Clearly, the value of sand injection can benefit soil nitrogen cycling and creating those sand channels that aids in optimizing oxygen levels. Dryject Services offers the most effective way to get the most out of your sand applications. Contact your local Dryject rep for more information or visit dryject.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I want to say my old friend, you're not very old, Jim, but we've known each other at least a decade now since we started working together on the Olympic project. Uh, Appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule. Hope you're doing well. Always, Frank. Always glad to come on. You know, it has been a while. And I was just saying as we got, you know, started here and the preliminary stuff is that, you know, look how far you've come. I mean, you're telling me you're in a studio, and uh, I remember the first time we did it maybe, at, what, seven years ago, something like that, whenever yeah. that was? Yeah. Like, you were working out of a chicken coop in, the, uh, in your farm. <laughs> That's right. You could hear the chickens, like, cackling around in the <laughs> so background. Great. You have a producer? I have I mean? a producer, yeah. We are a real operation here, and it really helps us get that professional sound, but what really makes it are great guests like you. So, just one more time, thanks for taking the time. Let me start out with, you know, just a general thing about golf, right? I mean, we know golf's gotten more popular. We know that during the pandemic, a lot of people came back to golf and a lot of people have stayed, right? It was one of the only things you can do. And I'm wondering from your perspective, I know you guys were, you know, busy before and, and you're still busy. Did you notice anything in this COVID time that even ramped up your business even more. What kind of an impact has the renewed interest in golf from a playing perspective had on enhanced design business? Well, I think one of the biggest things, Frank, is is that it's the enthusiasm for golf, mm. right? With COVID and people being able to get out and play, I think everybody started to really realize how much they enjoyed the game. You know, people that have been playing in the past, maybe not playing as much, and how much fun it was and how much fun golf can be, not only from, you know, the sport aspect of it, but a social aspect, Mm -hmm. right? Because like you just said, when the pandemic hit, you know, you really wasn't much you can do. This is one of the only things you can do. And you didn't have much social interaction as well. You know, you weren't going out to dinner. You weren't doing all those social things. Mm -hmm. And I think people really caught on to the fact that, you know, golf is very social. And I think that's kind of just continued right on down the line. As far as the enthusiasm end of it is concerned now from our business end of stuff, we have noticed it not a whole lot. Luckily and fortunate for us, we were extremely busy prior Mm -hmm. and even during. You know, it did get a little scary, you know, which, you know, if we want to follow up uh, on a little bit more at the beginning of the pandemic and some of the work that we were doing. But 
once we got past that initial wave, things have continued. And I think maybe one of the things that we're starting to see more of right now is the new construction. Some of the new construction is really revolving around these destination type clubs. You know, you were a big part of what we did at a Hoopy. And now we're seeing that model transitioned into something that, you know, is becoming a big part of the new golf culture. So you're exactly right, Jim. Certainly one of the things our society suffered from is the socialization aspect that golf brings. Because I will say, you guys make golf fun, but many courses I play make golf miserable. <laughs> so so for sure, you know, I know what you mean when you say fun, but I can tell you that many, many golf courses are designed to torment and torture golfers with a design approach. So big kudos to you guys for that, because I think you're right. The socialization and the fun aspect uh, has been a really important part. Has that enthusiasm for golf? I mean, you guys, are, like I know better than anybody, we're really busy. You might have upticked a little bit. And you're saying that the resort or the destination golf picked up a lot also. But did existing clubs want to tweak things because they're getting more members or getting more golfers? Did you get any particular projects when you say, well, you know, we could have it like this when it was only 10,000 rounds, but now... You know, membership is full and people are playing. We need to, some design issues to handle the increased interest or increased traffic. Did you get any projects where that was part of the design focus, accommodating that additional play? From an existing standpoint, we, we did not. At least I don't think we did. Uh, and I just say that because a lot of clubs that we're dealing with or were dealing with have continued on, right? These are longer-term relationship-type clubs. Mm-hmm what things we had in the pipeline were, were places like Colonial in Fort Worth, right? right. Great golf club, you know, great history, you know, yeah. hosts a great tournament. Yeah. You know, we, we've been with them, you know, for about five or six years. We just got into the ground this June after their event. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was all planning stuff. So that was always in the pipeline. And then some of our existing relationships like Baldus Roll, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we had done the lower and we were in the planning stage getting ready to go to the upper, which we're going to do next year. Mm-hmm. Your guys, let's say Arch Nemesis, Yale, you know, and <laughs> Yale Golf Club, their <laughs> golf course, again, same type of situation. You know, in and about COVID, we started working with them and transforming their magnificent golf course. Right. And that's always been in the planning stages. So it's definitely happening out there. I think a lot of clubs are doing that. And I think, you know, from what we're hearing and even a little bit in some of the stuff that we're seeing is that the PPP money was a big stopgap measure for those clubs because leading up to COVID, it was scary. The beginning of COVID when, you know, golf did get shut down for a little bit early on, it was scary. I think that was a big bridge that allowed the clubs to be more financially sound during that time. And then all of a sudden came this big influx of members and a renewed interest and enthusiasm and everybody excited about golf and joining clubs and a lot of people wanting to have, you know, I guess with COVID, I think it, it allowed people to realize that maybe there's more to life mm-hmm. than working yes. uh, all the time <laughs> uh, and being able to work from home. I mean, you know, things like that have allowed people more time. When you think about golf or think about somebody who lives in the beltway of D.C., mm-hmm. and it takes them an hour and a half to get to work 20 miles away, right. and you do that twice a day, you know, all of a sudden that's three, three and a half hours of your time, which is what it takes to play, you know, hopefully a quick round of golf mm-hmm. or go to the gym or whatever it might be. So I think a lot of these things that all came together 
I think are a huge benefit for the golf industry. But yes, it, the enthusiasm definitely has in a, in a lot of clubs out there. And you know, again, we were just fortunate end of things that we had a lot of stuff already in the pipeline. Well, you know, having things in the pipeline and discussing enthusiasm and thinking about the popularity, certainly you guys got popular in the last decade for sure. I mean, I've been looking at the website, looking at the projects, and I'm trying to figure out in your mind, When did you feel like you had hit your stride when you felt like all of a sudden the phone was ringing like crazy? I mean, obviously you had a lot of jobs at the turn of the century, you know, back at Rustic Canyon, you know, even back at South Fork Country Club in Amagansett uh, in 1999. But you look at your timeline, things started to take off in the middle 2000s. Is that when you think you started to hit your popularity? And I guess my bigger question is, how do you explain it, Jim? There's a lot of architects out there. How did you guys, in your mind, uh, what were the things that, you know, you and Gil were doing that really brought you guys, uh, I mean, we can call it Starkitects, both of you guys. I would just call it, you know, you're the flavor these days, the most, certainly two of the most popular architects we hear about all the time. How do you explain some of that, Jim? Uh, Well, all interesting questions, Frank. I really think that, at least in my mind, where a lot of our stuff came together, right? Whether our name, where we hit our stride, working on some really cool stuff, transforming an existing golf course back to something great, I think is when we did Marion. We did the work at Marion East. I think that was one of the points where we really hit our stride as far as everything kind of coming together. Because we gained popularity out there from the Olympics and Gil's personality, which is obviously a huge, huge part of all this stuff, right? Mm. And being able to be on TV and in front of the camera and, and speak well and be able to represent our company in a true gentleman fashion compared to me being on there, mm-hmm. right? We would have been out of business a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's uh, so I think that kind of all came together, you know, about the time at least in my mind, as far as execution of work was in and around the time we did Marion, right? Architecturally, the conversations that we've had and how we built off of everything, I mean, it, it was probably well, well before that, right? You know, going back to, you know, when we first got started, right. when you don't have a lot of work, right? And you spend a lot of time in your travels where you're trying to get work and moving around and visiting clubs and talking about architecture and it was also the point in our company's existence when we had both Bill Kittleman and Rodney Hine working with us, right? So we, we spent a lot of time in cars, you know, six hours driving out to Pittsburgh, you know, for the work we were trying to get at that point in time at like Allegheny Country Club. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have a lot of time mm-hmm. together where you're just basically talking about architecture and about a bunch of different stuff. So the foundation of all that stuff was built way back when, and it takes time for all that to develop. As far as us getting to the point where we became, you know, kind of a name is just, it's one of those things I think that kind of just happens or seemed to happen with us over mm-hmm. time. You know, we got to a point where there's a resurgence in new golf courses, what, like the late 90s, early 2000s, or somewhere up into about that time period. I don't really know when it started because we weren't in that name of architects that would be considered for new work. Mm-hmm. And back then it was, you know, Bill and Ben were, you know, doing a lot of great work and they were getting a lot of great jobs, as was Tom Doak, right? kind of the people that we compete with, you know, who work in the same manner as we do architecturally. We, we were never really in the running for those jobs. 
you know, we, we had some chances, we looked at things, but we just didn't have the name and maybe the background to work at that point in time. So what kind of ended up happening is that we became the ones that were the first ones or part of the, the group that were, were talking to existing clubs about renovation projects. The LA Country Clubs of the World, Plainfield, mm, yeah. we had started doing a little bit of dabbling with the PGA Tour, you know, like the TPC of Boston, which came a little bit later. But once you start building up that, we all know that golf is a very, very close-knit world. Everybody's a member of a couple of different clubs. Everybody knows everybody. And just on the basis of how we work, you know, the relationships, you know, especially Gil Foster with all these clubs and all the individuals within the clubs, that allowed us to move on to the next club and then the next club. And we were one of the few folks that were doing those type of renovation projects at that point in time. And then that obviously led to the point of, hey, they're doing some great stuff. And then as the new golf courses started coming back on board and even some of the long relationships, you know, Gil's very patient and some of the relationships that, you know, we started way back when. I mean, I don't know when the first time we went to Nebraska up to Valentine to look at, you know, the property with Cleve up there. Rodney was still with us. So it was probably 2006, mm -hmm. 2005. And we just built that golf course two years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. So you're 15, okay. 15 yeah. year later relationship and you're finally building the golf course. So that, that's kind right. of like where everything came together. Nothing really happened. I don't think there was really any one aha moment. It was kind of just a, a whole bunch of different things that came about in different times, you know, over the past 20 years that really were able to build up to the point we are where we are today. And the fact that we're pretty much booked with work for the next three or four years and we're selectively taking on projects uh, as we move forward. And it goes by quick. Yeah, it goes by quick. And actually, projects you have now may take another 10 years to build. But for now, Jim, we got to take a break. I'm with the vice president of Hans Golf Design, principal designer Jim Wagner. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Speaking of creativity and imagination in golf course design, I'm wondering why we can't be creative in selecting a sprayer. Why would you buy a sprayer from a mower company? Our partners at Frost Spray Technology Products are just the company you should be considering. The experts at Frost offer the latest technology and can deliver what you need when you need it. Precision applications require the right equipment to get the product applied at the right rate at the right time. Frost Spray Technology Products has the expertise you can rely on. Buy your next sprayer from a sprayer company, not a mower company. Learn more about all that Frost offers at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi here with Jim Wagner of Hans Golf Design. Jim, when we were talking in the last segment, you, you talked about, uh, you mentioned uh, Cork Crenshaw, Doak, are uh, the people you're competing with a lot of times because of the way you go about your work. How would you describe that philosophical way that you and Gil go about your work that makes it similar to those other architects? Well, I think the one similarity between, you know, us, you know, Bill and Ben, Tom, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, the guys that have worked with, you know, all the above. It's all about being on the site, being there as much as you possibly can, Actually, you know, reacting and acting in the moment as to what you look at, you know, what you feel, the imagination that, you know, you can then come up with to be creative in real time. I don't think, and I say it all the time to a lot of guys, you can't be that creative sitting in an office 2,000 miles away. 
you, you can't smoke that much marijuana to be that creative. <laughs> you know, you, ha- you have to be out there in the field. And I think that's when you, you look at all the guys. That, and there's a lot of guys that do great work. I'm you know, not putting any of those guys down in any way, shape or form. It's just the, the way we practice, right, is that I just feel, we feel that, that that's really where our inspiration comes from, being out there. I mean, just over the past job that we're working on here in uh, Florida, up in Hope Sound, the Apogee Club, and we're down to our last hole to shape. You know, the green's all finished, but we had no clue what we wanted to do in the fairway. And quite frankly, still don't, even though we're shaping. But it's taken six months of constantly driving back and forth down the golf hole and then finally realizing, you know what, this is really what it should be. This is what looks the best because we didn't have some other aspects to tie into the first hole. We didn't have the ninth hole done. We didn't know what the left of the ninth hole was going to be, which ties into the left of the first hole. And it really takes time for those things to develop until you have that point in time when you're looking at it. And maybe you're looking at it in the evening or early in the morning when the shadows change of what's there. And you come up with the inspiration and it spurs your imagination. And then it allows you to slide into, you know, to the creativity end of things. So it takes a while. But to me, that's really, you know, it's the fun of it. Sitting in an office and drawing up plans isn't the fun of it for the way we operate. It's getting all the machines. It's doing stuff. And it's kind of funny because, you know, we've got different folks out there that want to do different short, you know, videos and stuff like that on either a project we're working on to give to the members and just have some sort of, you know, history of the construction process. And we're boring in that regard, right? Because they always (laughs) ask, hey, can you send us some sketches of what you guys were thinking? We don't have anything. (laughs) <laughs> we, we don't. There, there is nothing. You know, yes, we have a routing plan and probably a lot of different variations of that routing plan in the beginning. And then, sure, at some point in time, that transitions into some sort of plan for the golf course where there may be a vision for a couple holes and we got some bunkers here and we got some bunkers there. And that's really about where it ends. It all happens in the field. Like people say, well, what was the idea for the, the plan on this green? Well, there was no idea for the plan on this green. <laughs> Right. Because we literally just came up with it yesterday when we hopped on the bulldozer to shape it. That doesn't mean that Gil, when he's doing something, as a matter of fact, at Apogee on the 14th green, he just built this green, which is really cool. It's kind of got a a wishbone, you know, ridge that runs through it and these three really cool sections of the green and mounds on the two sides in the front, big mound in the back that holds everything up. So really cool. He said he's been waiting, you know, 15, 20 years to build something like that. So it's been in the back of his mind for a long period of time. It doesn't mean that before we started this job and when we submitted the plans to the owner, that's what was drawn. That green was always going to be there. No, I mean, it's been planned for, but it may not have been planned on this golf course. You know what I mean? Right. And it's it's the same thing from my standpoint. I may see something in a club that we're playing at and say, you know what? You take that away with you. You catalog that up there in that hard drive that we have in our head. And you hold on to it, and then at some point in time, it comes out. You don't know why it comes out. It just comes out. It's not planned. So this is very interesting, Jim, because, of course, you're exactly right. A lot of people look at designs. They look at grading plans. They look at a lot of engineering documents. And that seems to guide what happens in a lot of cases. And it sounds like one of the keys to the way you like to work is to use your imagination. And I've read in some of your stuff 
you know, really surprise people uh, when they see things. And it sounds like that element of surprise comes from your own surprise that you may have stored something in there and, and now it's coming to life, uh, shaping the earth and, and finalizing a plan or, or a whole. But when I look at your portfolio, it's filled with uh, renovations and restorations. Yep. And those projects feel like they might be a little bit more constraining. So I got a two-part question. Sure. Explain to the listeners the difference in your mind between renovation and restoration and then the strengths of your imagination, how you feel like you let them play out in those processes. Well, let's start with renovation versus restoration. I think the vocabulary between the two, quite frankly, is a bunch of BS. I don't <laughs> think there's anything different between restoration and renovation. And I say that because whatever anybody classifies a renovation as or a restoration, this is a true restoration, right? There is a renovation element to that. We can't go to Colonial where we're working now. And yes, we are going back. There's some aspects of what we're doing at Colonial, which you could call a restoration, right? Restoration meaning you're going back to something that was there at some point in time, right? You're using old photographs, old documents that you're going to then take and you're going to recreate. A lot of times it's what we interpret as being in that photo. And that's what you're restoring. You're restoring the shape of the greens. But as part of that whole thing, right? There's a renovation aspect to it. In the case of Colonial, sure, we're restoring a couple grains that we have old photos, you know, based off of, but we're renovating the entire place because everything is going to be brand new. We're not restoring the greens, you know, we're not going back to some push-up clay, you know, that they put in the ground in 1934. You know what I mean? We're, right, we're, we're right. renovating that, right? We're going, we're taking the modern principles, you know, we're doing USGA greens, we're doing hydronics. So the big renovation component is part of that. Okay, same thing with the teas, with the grassing, with the irrigation. So when you talk about restoring, sure, there's aspects of what people would traditionally call a restoration where you're going back to something. You're not truly going back to that because the green speeds are different. Your contours and your greens have to be different, you know, just because of the maintenance aspects of it. So it's kind of like an interchangeable term. I think, again, it's a little bit on the BS side of stuff. It's a good salesmanship for clubs, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's great for us and, and, and how the clubs go about moving forward. And believe me, when we do those types of, let's call them restorations, we do try to think and feel about what it was like to build back then, the photos. Some clubs have a bunch of them, and we, and we are sympathetic to that. But there is a, a big renovation component to that because you are going for the modern-day game. You're going for... Mm -hmm modern day maintenance, right? And the technology in the game. So there's a lot of different things that go on part of that. So I'm not a big person, obviously, on this renovation versus restoration stuff, because it's just, it, it's not really 100% accurate when you, when you think about it. Okay. So then let's, let's bring up, because it sounds like uh, in your mind, that's maybe where the imagination comes in. In other words, even though you're restoring it or, and renovating it, you're thinking about a way to accommodate the modern game. But in the case of Marion, didn't you really just rebuild what was there? Or did you make significant changes that made it such a landmark piece of work for you? Well, in the Marion, there was a lot of significant changes made before we got there, which is kind of what the focus was on when we arrived, is to restore what had been there. So, yes, we ended up putting stuff back that may have either been taken out or just to look over time had just gotten away from what it originally was. But there was also things done for the tour, right? I mean, that golf course played 64, 6,500 yards 
for the longest period of time until you start to get a tour event or the U.S. Open, right? Mm-hmm. Still, you get big events like that. Then now you start changing things and in, in the need for change. You're adding back tees, right? You're not restoring anything when you're adding back tees. You, you, you'll never get to the point that a pro today is going to hit a one iron on the 18th hole at Marion, you know, unless they hit a seven iron off the tee. You know what yeah. I mean? So you're never <laughs> right. ever going to restore that shot that Hogan hit. So you have to kind of get that out of your mind. And then also because of the modern day game, right? And the green speeds and the maintenance and the stuff, you are looking at areas on different greens to go ahead and bring back. Again, you may be restoring what some of this original thought was on the greens, so like the fifth green at Marion, which slopes, you know, extremely hard from right to left down towards the creek. At one point in time, way back when, there was a little pin position up on the right-hand side of that hole. But, you know, that's in 1931, you know what I mean? Mm, that's or right. 34. Yeah. That's been long gone for the past 70 years. You know, you're not putting a pin there, at least for the most part. Maybe the late 70s, early 80s, you got away with it every so often. But you're, you're not doing that today. You never were. So we have to go ahead and make the, get that pin location. And you're, you're right in the sense of it's things like that. It's the second green just become – for a yardage standpoint, the second green at Marion got moved back, right? It was recreated, whatever it was, 25 yards or 30 yards back from the old, you know, location. So the holes now play longer. So there is some creativity in how you get that to look and feel the same as it was when it was 25, 30 yards closer to the tee, but on a totally different piece of ground. Elevation's different. How do you get the tie-ins to work? So there's a lot of creativity involved in, in those elements. There's a lot of creativity put in to taking the bunkers and even looking at old aerial, aerial photograph and saying, wow, this bunker was like this. And you, you're basically working with a, a blank slate. So your imagination, right, of being able to recreate that is just something that it takes a lot, okay, to be able to draw on that and be, hey, yeah. this is yeah. what needs to happen. It's creativity. It's spatial context. But to tie, like, all this together, right, is that the new work and the creativity that we allow ourselves by just making stuff up on the fly for you know lack of a better phrase when we, mm-hmm. we decide to build a green or we need to draw on some experiences to be able to put a bunker complex in in the corner of a dog leg you go back to those times when you're working at marion or you're working at a ball troll or you're working at wingfoot because you've looked at this stuff for a long period of time you've looked at those old aerials you've seen how they work in the ground so then you're yeah. taking that even though it's not as creative because you only have a couple creative items during the entire course of the project, you have the freedoms to really be creative with. But you're working with all these great masters of the classic golden age of architecture, and you've seen what they've done. And now you're able to pull that out and say, I can do that here in the corner of the dog. Like, you're not going to just go recreate it, you know, and, and that's not architecture. We say, hey, let's build a 10th hole at Riviera here. Yeah, there's some creativity and fun in that. But architecture you know digging down the creativity and making it work and everything come together so it's kind of interesting how one plays off the other and one's more exciting than the other in different ways well and i'll tell you jim that's a great answer thank you for that answer people sometimes forget that yes you're restoring it but it's a different game today so i know that you have definitely made those adjustments and brought in your creativity and imagination into the process but at the same time, things got to drain yeah. and you got to get grasses on there and you got to put irrigation out there and you're going to put bunkers in there. And of course, I don't have to tell you, you know, we can talk about believe if we want, but the climate is changing. We're getting more intense and extreme conditions. I know that when we worked on the Frisco project together, this was uh, front and center, right? We were expecting these deluge rain events 
um, and there just didn't seem to be enough drainage that you could put in these operations. Have you in your mind begun to make those adjustments, thinking about what the climate's going to be moving forward and incorporating the really nuts and bolts of moving earth and draining things and putting sprinkler heads and deciding on grasses and trying to be more sustainable. Are you thinking about the changing climate when you're doing these things more than you used to? Yes. I mean, it's not something that, that we actively sit down and say, hey, with climate change coming, we need to be prepared and we need to do this. We don't have those conversations. But what happens is, is when you start putting everything together and you talk about engineering and you talk about the practical nature of things and, and moving water. And perfect example is what we're doing up at our job here in Florida. Everybody feels that you're in Florida, it's sand, everything drains great and natural. That's really not true at all, uh, especially with the land that we're working on. You know, totally flat. And you've got a thousand acres and you've got two contour lines that go across the entire property. And then what happens is, you know, when the engineering aspects start to come alive, and they're the ones that are probably looking more towards climate change, right, and seeing the trends and what's happening, their design elements change. For instance, we drain into the St. Lucie River. And, you know, the good and bad of it, you know, the St. Lucie River gets a lot of that blue-green algae. Now, what the locals want us to do from an environmental standpoint, they want us to take as much water as we possibly can and use it out on the golf courses from the St. Lucie River, because that helps their concerns and their problems with the algae. So that's a good thing mm. in that regard. Now, with 25-year storms becoming more prevalent, even though it's hard to say because it's based on the 25-year storm. So what's happening is the modeling for those 25-year storms is changing, the volume, the amount of water, et cetera. So now things start to change out on the property because you have a control structure. You're not allowed to just free drain everything into any body of water off your property. So we go into a canal that then dumps into the St. Lucie River. Well, the engineer aspects, taking in all the climate change stuff, change elevations on you. So our property mainly sits at, say, 20, 21, okay? Well, our control structure for any water leaving the property is 19.5. How do we drain a golf course with, you know, a foot of freeboard in order to get the water out of the property? How do you run drainage so that your basins, your main structures and your basins are all above those uh, outfall pipes, right? Because you, you have to be higher than that, obviously. And you just don't put them at knowing that, you know, when you're going to get these heavy rains and the water leaving the property, you're probably going to, it's going over a dam, basically, right? It's going over a weir structure. That's right. You could have three inches of water flow going over top of that, if not more. Well, you better be damn sure that your drains, the bottom of your greens, right? Your uh, basins, your bunkers, everything need to be above that elevation by, you know, a couple inches so that, all of a sudden, that stuff's not coming back up out of the ground or you're not sitting wet in a green cavity for three days while it takes for this water to eventually leave the property and get low enough that things can start to breathe and, and function properly. So it's out there, right, Frank? It's happening. It just doesn't happen so much from our end of stuff because that's usually built into the engineering end of things. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with Jim Wagner, Vice President and Design Partner at Hans Golf Course Design. We'll be right back. After a golf course is constructed, it has to be grown in and managed. 
During that process, your nutrient management decisions are critical. Our partners at the Plant Food Company have products and programs that research has shown offer solutions to the most critical grow-in and management problems, and you can trust those answers. So as you are putting together your nutrient management program, trust your plant food company rep to provide you with the latest technology that supports plant health and maximizes playability. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with Jim Wagner, Vice President and Design Partner of Hans Golf Design. And it has been a glorious discussion already, Jim. And I want to get into uh, some of your projects because I've been involved in a couple of them, but there are some ones that are very interesting that I want to get your perspective on. And I think one of the ones that's more fascinating has been the park, the West Palm Beach project that you've gotten involved in with uh, Dirk Ziff and, and Seth Waugh. You know, this sounds like it was a public golf course that was losing money that people took an interest in and they got you and Gil involved in. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of this project and maybe why it's uh, been maybe more interesting than other projects that you've done? Yeah, so Frank, I, I kind of want to wrap three projects into that one because we have three projects that are all the same. Great. In and around, you know, the park in, in West Palm, right? So it's the golf park west, in West Palm Beach. It's Cobbs Creek Golf Links in Philadelphia, and it's Rock Creek in uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, that was an original Flynn golf course uh, taken over by the National Links Trust who took over all the other golf courses kind of in the D.C. area. So three munis. We, we can call them three munis. All tired, the verge of being defunct or defunct. You have three separate foundations, each one of those, National Links Trust in D.C., Friends of Cobbs Creek in Philadelphia, and then Park Foundation. I don't actually know their exact name uh, that was put together specifically to, to raise money for the West Palm Beach golf course, right? So in the Park's case, you have a golf course, West Palm Beach, just off of 95, beautiful piece of ground. I mean, you actually have 26 feet of elevation change on the property, pure sand, Old golf course, originally done by Dick Wilson. You know, it was kind of the place to play for a lot of aspiring pros and and local better players for the longest period of time. In the surgence of Florida area, a lot of other golf courses start coming on board. Then next thing you know, the park decides to make a change. They redo that original rallying, which kind of happens a lot more times than you want it to happen. But, you know, new design, not as well thought of. You know, there's some problems and issues. And then also with all the other golf happening in the area, it just wasn't a place that people were willing to go play or wanted to go play for various different reasons. So the city was losing money. And I guess their contract with their prior management company was up. So they just basically shut down. And I forget how long it laid there. And it just became a sad, sad place. You know, it was beautiful, 200 acres and not a whole lot going on in the middle of a neighborhood, you know, just kind of a blight on the area. And then through the vision of some of the local guys that you, know, you kind of brought up, Seth Waugh, I know was very instrumental, as was Dirk Ziff and Tommy Franco and Dan Stanton. Uh, they had known us. I live down here now full time. We've done a couple little projects in the area. And Gil's, you know, maintained some friendships with guys like Seth and Dirk and, you know, kind of things we started talking about in the beginning of this. You know, one of the great things about Gil is he maintains those relationships and the friendships and so they start the foundation. They ask us if we want to be involved. You know, Gil's like, yeah, 100% in. You know, whatever you guys need, we'll do. Really, the beauty of this whole thing is, well, one, it's just the concept of it, right? It wasn't just mm-hmm. about being golf, right? Golf was the conduit for this. But, you know, it's about becoming a community park that welcomes people. And that's really where the name came from, right? 
it's the park. Everybody wants to refer to it as it's the park. I hear it now. You know, it's been open for actual play for maybe about four months. And it's not just people love the golf course. You know, I run in the guys that, you know, down here in Florida that whether there's some of the pros that have played the golf course, right? Whether it's Brad Faxon or Ian Baker Finch, you know, they say how much fun it is and how much they love it. I'll run into people. I'll be out to dinner and my wife will be sitting there having dinner. And, you know, somebody will come up next to us, sit down and start talking, which, you know, another great social thing. And again, golf brings you together. And all of a sudden they're like, you know, where do you play in the area? They start talking about, you know, the park and how much they love it, right. you know. That's extremely rewarding. You know, just last week we ran into a couple. They were excited because they live in the area. They play golf. They're members of the club. It's a little bit further out. But they loved it because they have a three-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. And as they start getting to, you know, this age of wanting to go out and do something, right, they want to take their kids there. They've been there for lunch. They love the place. So, you know, it's somebody, it's a family. And that's what we want to see. You want to see that UK, the, the British model where at 6 o'clock at night you see the grandmother and the two grandkids going out and playing golf. They may play nine holes. It doesn't matter. So there's a lot of community element to it, and I think it's become something that's really welcomed there. Eventually, hopefully, we'll get to it at Cobbs Creek. Yeah. You know, although we thought we were going to be done building the golf course there for the Open in Marion in 2013, and we haven't started yet. <laughs> so Rock Creek has got a longer fuse because they're really just getting going. But, <laughs> I mean, that to me is the beauty of all that stuff, right, Frank, is the community aspect. Yeah. And that's what golf used to be. And it's really how right. we started this whole conversation yeah. today is about, you know, the social aspect of it. What does it mean? How come clubs are, are moving forward and being able to do the work? But, you know, th that's the best part of it. You know, you have a, a two-year-old and a three-year-old, the, the, the memories that that golf course is going to bring them, you know, they're going to love the game forever. And it's about bringing people together, communities, and enjoying the game as a conduit for all that. This is great. And you're right, Jim. It did come full circle with the socialization aspect of it. Now, at the other end of the spectrum are these really fascinating projects. Uh, I just got to visit your spectacular work at Ladera. And of course, I was involved with you guys at a hoopie. And I understand there's like some sort of wild animals out, out at a hoopie now. Honestly, I've never seen a hoopie finished. I walked on that place four or five times when we were building it. I was thinking about that the other day when I was talking to somebody about being involved. They're like, oh, isn't it beautiful? I was like, well, I've never even seen it finished. And I've never seen Frisco and certainly haven't seen a lot of the golf courses that we've worked on. But this other end, Jim, where you've got, number one, I think you guys are involved in help actually finding the site and picking the land. And then it's designing, I don't know, what can only be described as like a connoisseur's golf course, right? Like people collect wine uh, or maybe want to produce a fine wine and, and have that taste for the wine. Uh, you're working with really affluent people who golf is their passion and, and they use it as their own socialization mechanism. Let's talk about Ahupi and Ladera. Uh, looks like a lot of sand in both places. What's it like to work on those kinds of jobs where you guys have really a lot of free reign? Ahupi was really designed for match play, so it's a totally different concept. Ladera, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to shake out. I don't think it's going to be played by that many people. But how is it working on those sort of connoisseur passion projects with people like that? Very good question, Frank. And it's kind of interesting, right? And a lot of the questions that come up in golf when you're looking to start a golf club or people chatter about golf clubs, and they tend to say, is all the great land gone, right? Meaning ocean frontage, of course, is what they're all focusing on, right? But right. there's plenty of great ground around. What has been lost in all that and really what the question should be, 
are there any great owners left? Because that's really what you're after it's at a certain point in time, right? You can have the best site in the world, and if you don't have a good owner or a good ownership group who gives you the freedom and wants to have a lot of say, then you're probably not going to end up with the best golf course that can be on that piece of ground. So it takes a very strong owner to be able to say, listen, I've, I've got the ground to let you guys, you guys, we hired you on, on the merits of your prior work. You know, the creativity that you bring in those jobs, the things that we can see, we're going to let you go do that. And the thing about a hoopie, the thing about Ladera, uh, since we're just talking about those two jobs, is you have two great owners that allow us to do that. And that just draws the ability. The last thing you want to do in, in any discipline, right, it doesn't matter with what you're doing or from a superintendent end of things, if you start to question yourself about what you're doing, you're never going to reach your maximum mm -hmm. potential. If you sit there and you keep saying to yourself, well, what's the ownership going to think about this? What are my members going to think about this? You will never make the right decision because you're going to get into your own head and you're going to start thinking about, oh, well, he may not like this. He made a comment about that where she wasn't really in tune with what we were doing here. And once that creeps into your mindset, then you're going to start to have problems. You'll never reach your greatest potential, especially from a creativity standpoint. So both Irving and Michael, they let us do everything we wanted to do. They didn't really say anything about what was happening. They just let everything kind of play itself out. Let us be creative. Let us go ahead and dabble in some different stuff with different feels mm -hmm. to then create something that, it, that they enjoy playing that's fun, that's challenging, it's interesting, that matches the natural mm -hmm. beauty of the area, right? Uh, and obviously, you know that from a hoopie. So it's a very, very important part of all this, right, is that they all allowed us to just be creative and do what we wanted to do. There wasn't really much input from them as mm -hmm. to what they thought about it and how they wanted to come together. And that, that's a huge, huge part of being creative. Okay. So now, listen, I'll get you out of here on this. I really appreciate you taking the time and really reflecting on on maybe things you don't get to talk about very much because I know you're, you know, busy building and thinking about and imagining and and. And noodling over as well. well. Usually, Frank, I'm yelling at contractors and chasing people around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about input and feedback, because obviously you and Gil's work was a center stage at the U.S. Open at L.A. Country Club. Yep. And, uh, you know, everybody is an armchair architect and critic. And one of the things I saw them do during the broadcast was to take the trees out. Right. You guys left trees in a couple of places. And I, you know, I look at it like, you know, trees are oftentimes in the way when it comes to growing grass. But I don't think a lot about it when it comes to the strategy of playing the game. So another two part question, Jim. Sure. Number one, I don't know how much you pay attention to it or listen to it. But number one is uh, how do you take that feedback from people when it's a high profile event like that and everybody's got their opinions on it. Cause I know, you know, you and I can be um, a bit uh, opinionated ourselves. So first question is handling the opinions. And the second is how do you go about ultimately deciding to leave certain trees there that seem to be confusing for some golfers and then they don't think anything of it. Another golfer or some armchair person says this and another person says that. How do you handle the feedback and how do some of those decisions with trees in the case of LA Country Club come about? Well, let, let, let me just say this first. It's like you've grown over the past couple, you know, frankly speaking, that I've done with you, right? Because usually you would start out trying to fire that fastball by early on, right? 
<laughs> now you've got this thing where you're throwing a couple curveballs, you know, found some things off. You know, you let me hit a double. I got, you know, bases loaded. <laughs> and then you bring in Mariana Rivera, Rivera and then you're firing some fastballs right. right down the middle, right? Right. That's uh, right. So kudos to you for Great. the change Thank in you. style. It's no longer, you know, Merv Griffin from, you know, 1970. That's right. But, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, so well, some of this stuff, right, Frank, it's like, We've been groomed as far as dealing with the critics, right? When we started doing a lot of work with the PGA Tour, actually, if it goes back further than that, when we first got started in this business, you know, we worked with Bill Kittleman, you know, as the great old pro from Marion Golf Club, brilliant architecture mind and all around great person. Bill's biggest thing was don't be afraid to be criticized. If you're worried about being criticized, it's going to create issues for you. You're never going to go ahead and get the best architecture out there. So that's always stuck with us. So we start doing work for the PGA Tour. The member stuff is easy to blow off because if you're if you do a renovation, hopefully in the end at any club you're going to have you know sixty seventy percent approval of what you've done and you, you know it's considered a home run. So you know that's easy to be able to just push on to the back burner. And then when you start hearing the pros start to criticize your work and you start to say to yourself, wow, you know these guys are some of the best golfers in the world, you know, and they're criticizing taking down trees or leaving trees or why did you put that bunker there? Why did you build that green like this? And you start realizing, you start thinking about it, like, man, they're right. But then you get to the point, you reflect on it even further, and you say to yourself, well, hold on a second. What makes them architectural critics? It's the fact that they can play the game of golf, and they play it well, and they play it a certain way. They have a certain eye for golf courses that they like, that is mm -hmm. beneficial to their game, and tournaments that they win, you hear it all the time, so-and-so has yeah. won that tournament five times at that golf course, right? It's great. That's the beauty of the U.S. Open and these, these other big tournaments, the Open this week, right, is that they move all over to these different venues and not everybody has the preferred game for that specific golf course. So when you realize that a lot of the criticisms that are being made, especially from the pro end of things, are just based on what their likes are and what their beliefs are. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It doesn't mean that we need to follow their specific architectural thoughts based on their beliefs, right? It's our beliefs. It's what the original criteria was for the project that we were after. It's all these old books that you look at, you know, whether it's George Thomas, you know, Golf Architecture in America or British Golf Links by, you know, Hutchinson, right? You have all these great old books which talk about the history and the game, and, you know, how interesting and fun it is. And if you just stick with yourself and you say, listen, we're going to build something that's fun, interesting and different. It's going to be challenging, right? The criticisms can come because... They're going to criticize something, and we want them to criticize something because that means we are not getting to the point architecturally and creative-wise where we're taking it to the limit, mm -hmm. and we're creating something that may be different that people haven't seen. But if you think about it, and we think about it in our philosophy, where is it playable from? You know, It may not be the obvious line of choice. It may not be smash that driver out there 350 yards, and you're going to have an open shot into the green. Right? Look at how they struggled at the sixth hole at LA Country yeah. Club, right? 15 when it was played at 81 yards or 86 yards, right. whatever that number was, right. right? It's really cool. It's fun. So you almost have to take those criticisms away. You know, whether it's about taking down trees or not taking down trees, it's just, it's all based on the same thing. You're trying to create something that's different. It's fun. It's interesting. And, and you just got to black the uh, criticisms out because it's just based on people's own beliefs. Jim, it is a joy. I wish sometimes people could hear the things we talk about when we're not recording because they're pretty funny, too. Actually, they're the, they're, they're the best conversations, but it would never fly with your sponsors. Like, no, it would never fly with the, with the people, with, with the kind of audience we're trying to cultivate. Jim, thanks again for taking the time. Jim Wagner, the vice president and design partner of Hans Golf Design. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. Really appreciate you joining me, Jim. All right. Thanks, Frank. 
Take care. Big thanks to Jim Wagner. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.